0: Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Hey friends, this is episode 12 on the No Auto Methodist podcast, so glad you've joined us. Uh, if you didn't get a chance to, episode 11 was my interview with Errol Haida. That was a really enlightening interview. A uh, number of people have commented on it and said how much they enjoyed it. Uh, I, it was a real joy and a pleasure for me to sit down with him, and uh, a lot of wisdom there. Um, so anyway, hopefully you're about to hear some wisdom here uh, this last Sunday. Sorry we're getting this out so late, by the way, but uh, this last Sunday we read a prolonged section from 1 Samuel dealing with uh, the birth of Samuel and his, his mother Hannah's um, struggles in, in helping that happen. And just what a wonderful husband Elkanah is. Actually, I didn't talk about that very much. I ended up talking a lot about childhood development and uh, the importance of stable households, uh, even though that's not very directly related to... Um, The reading, but uh, what is more directly related is um, sacrifice and hardship. Um, Hannah, if you don't know this, um, bargained with God and was able to conceive on the condition that she gave her child back to the Lord, and we try and talk about what it's like to to go through something emotionally like that. And um, there's no psalm for the day. Instead, we went to Hebrews and talked about uh, the power of Christ's blood, and then in the New Testament reading, talking about the nature of the temple and um, what it was like when Jesus was talking about its destruction and then pointing towards the last day. So we're kind of spread out, but um, the the themes that we we really covered dealt with um, sacrifice and and, um, going through hard things that we don't feel like we can go through, but being able to because God is with us. Uh, Whether we're talking about the destruction of the temple or the loss of a child or, uh, heck, there are a lot of really awful things that we can go through in life. And on a personal note, my dog died this week, and uh, God is still good, but I'm sad, and maybe I need to listen to that sermon again. Maybe I said some things worth remembering. But um, anyway, I hope this is a comfort to you. I've talked long enough. Enjoy uh, our message from this last Sunday. God bless you. Usually the Revised Common Lectionary has us reading one Old Testament reading, a Psalm, a New Testament reading, and a Gospel reading. This week it has us not doing a Psalm reading, but doing two back-to-back readings from the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. I don't know why they chose to do this, but I decided to go with them on this. I think it's good to have prolonged exposure to one piece of scripture. Um, who's doing the first reading, Sarah? Okay, one of the, it's not easy there's a lot of not-fun words. Oh, you've already looked at it. Okay, so let's... Okay, very good. Brad Brad's going to get us through, and then uh, we'll talk about it.
1: Thank you, Brad. Yeah, and I do apologize. I know I'm going to mispronounce some of these, but hopefully we'll get the bigger point. That's all right. Okay, our first reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 20 which begins on page 415 in your pew Bibles. Listen to the word of God. There is a certain man from Ramaatham, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerohim, Jero- the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, one was called Hannah, and the other was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give to him the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. To the Lord, Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you <clears throat> what you have asked of Him," she said. "May your servant find," she said, "may your servant find favor in your eyes." Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ram- Ram- Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So, in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, because I asked the Lord for him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Thanks be to God.
1: So the Shema is a,
0: a prayer that Jews say every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The first word of that prayer in Hebrew is Shema, which means hear, listen up. Shmuel, Shmuel is listen, God. God listens. El, El always means God and any of the names. Uh, uh, so Mikael, who is like God. Michael, that's the word Michael we have. Joel is a prophet. Um, El anytime you have El, that means God. El is just a, Elohim, is God's. That's the word in Hebrew often used for the one true God, the God of Israel. Uh, Elohim just means spiritual being. So it's it's used all over the Bible for different things. But El is short for God. Shemuel is God heard, and she names her son, God listened to my prayer, he heard, he acted. This is a lovely story, I love this story, it means a lot more to me now that I'm a father. Let me just say, I, uh, <laughs> I, I love the difference between men and women, um, I just think it's a tragedy that we're undoing this as a society, and I'm not doing a whole culture war thing today, but I've watched my wife conceive and bear children several times. And it is the most amazing thing that people can do. Men are pretty cool. We're strong. We have testosterone. Women, you can grow other people inside you, and it's amazing. And praise God. But some women have been excluded from this um, in history. Their bodies just are not uh, built to do it. Uh, The the biblical term is barren. I forget what the medical term for it is. Uh, We live in a time right now which is really scary. We're seeing fertility rates of uh, people across the world, but especially in the West, really go down. There, there are a lot of people choosing not to have children, and then there are a lot of people who cannot have children. And it's not just women, it's men. Uh, it, it's in particular men. We're seeing uh, testosterone rates of men really bottoming out across America. It's weird. We don't know why. I think it's plastics, but it's neither here nor there. It doesn't have to do with Jesus. You can be saved if you have low, low testosterone men, but you still don't want it. Here, Hannah wanted to have a child. She wanted to have a child so bad She had a husband, but that husband had another wife, Penina, and this lady was popping out children left and right. Sons, daughters, and Penina and Hannah are the two wives of one man, so they're in a competitive position, and Penina is just a real jerk about it, just rubs her face in it all the time. And Hannah, her husband loves her more, gives her a double portion of the meat when it comes time to offer. He tries to comfort her. She's really upset she can't have children. He says, oh, honey, don't be upset, don't you? Aren't I so much better for you than children? And she doesn't say anything, but the answer is, no, not really. There comes a point in the marriage where your husband's all right, but you want some babies. Sarah Beth likes me all right, but man, I can't make her smile the way that Clementine can. There's just there's a wonderful blessing to children. Life, here's, here's I've been saying a lot of things you can deal away with, but one of the things that I want you to hold on to is life is not about ourselves. We're not here to just do what we want bless ourselves. Life is about blessing God first and others second, and the best way to bless this world that we're in is to create children that are a blessing to this world that we're in. Sarah Beth and I, please continue praying for us. Our children test us every day, but we're trying to make children that are a blessing to the world around us, and we're concerned with a generation of parents that are more self-centered than worried about their own kids. You know, it's not doing well for kids. I don't know how many of you read, uh, I put an excerpt of an article I was reading yesterday talking about poverty actually is not a good indicator of whether or not someone's gonna do well later in life. What is, is house sta- stability of a household. And unstable households harm all children, but especially young men. Young men are really doing badly in our, our society. And when they grow up in an unstable household, it does so much damage that many of them will never have functional lives. There is a big ministry for the church to help young families do family well, to make sure their children have stable households, to make sure that they grow up in loving homes, which is weird. Well, it's not weird, but the way that Hannah does this, she makes a bargain with God. She goes to the tabernacle. The temple had not been built yet. The tabernacle was a big fancy traveling tent. With the Ark of the Covenant, God dwelled there, and she came and she had to pray because Penina's just shoving her face in, in this. They would come to pray as a family once a year, and Hannah's just, her back's against the wall. She's so desperate. She's so upset. I don't know if any of you have ever been like this, but she's pouring her heart out to God, and she's praying, and she's crying, and Eli, who is the head honcho there, the head priest, he sees her praying sees her mouth moving see that she's in a messed up state and he thinks she's drunk and we don't deal with this here we lock the doors here during the week but uh, if you've ever seen catholic churches in the middle of a city they'll often have people coming in and praying all the time and you better believe they have drunks coming in and you better believe it part of a life of a priest is just coming in and dealing with people that are high or that are drunk and i don't know how they respond but eli here responds get out of here drunk lady aren't you ashamed you should quit drinking But the best part of the story is not Eli chewing her out. That's kind of sad, but, I mean, it is what it is. It's wonderful how she stands up for herself. She says, not so, my Lord. I'm not drunk. I haven't been pouring anything into me. I've been pouring out my heart to God. And then because she stands up for herself, uh, Eli prays for her. He says, may God grant your wish. And what do you know? She goes home. She and her husband do what husbands and wives do. And a baby comes. And what a blessing. And that's not to say that God is always going to, you know, some people will give the sermon, if you're desperate enough and you pray as hard as Hannah did, God will give you whatever you want. And I don't think that's the moral of this story. I think the moral of the story is sometimes God is just waiting on us to pray. There are things, blessings that he is withholding until you humble yourself. You know, a lot of us, we just feel entitled to a child. A lot of people just feel entitled to a, a raise or a promotion. A lot of people feel entitled to a peaceable life. These are not things we're entitled to. They're all blessings from God. And we would do well to remember that it's only by God's goodness that we get anything. We should be on our knees constantly praying for blessing and then thanking God for blessing. And too often, we're, we're not on our knees. We're feeling entitled. We're not even acknowledging God who, who gave us what we got. But this woman remembers, and she made a deal with God. She said, I will give him back to you. And so did we get, where, where was the cutoff point for this? Did we get to the point where she actually gave him back? Nope just to where she named him. So let's go ahead and dig back in. Am I reading this one, Sarah Beth? Okay. Y'all want to know who's really in charge here. It's my wife. Our third reading is from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 21 through chapter 2, verse 11. It begins on page 416 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow... Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, "'Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord.' And he worshipped the Lord there. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows. And by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive, the Lord he brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and He exalts. He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sets them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails, those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli, the priest. This is the word of the Lord. So the weird thing about this story is, The best environment for children to grow up in is at home with their mamas and daddies, right? But this woman made a bargain with the Lord. She said, if you give him to me, I give him back to you. And he doesn't stop being her son. It tells us later on she comes back every year, gives him a new coat. It's not really a replacement for having her tuck him in every night. But even so, Samuel does okay. He's raised well under Eli when Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, Uh, scandalize the temple. He's the one still carrying the banner for the Lord, and he ends up, I mean, the book is called Samuel, First and Second Samuel. It's named after him. He's the one on whom all of Israelite history turns for 80 years, I think. It's a wonderful story. The Lord speaks directly to him when he's like 9, 10, 11 years old. You remember that story in the middle of the night, he's sleeping by the Ark of the Covenant. So God sees fit to do well with the one whom he's been entrusted, but can you imagine what it's like to be Hannah right here? I think Hannah's the the marvel of this story. She is, for years, without children, pining away, just so upset she can't have a child. She, she finally gets a child, and then she drops him off at the tabernacle and lets him grow up there. She misses out on all his growing up. Can you imagine how hard that is? Can you imagine? And I just think that's a wonderful story for us to meditate on because does the Lord ever require that you and I sacrifice things that we care about? I got one solid yes, and I got a lot of empty glances. This is a hard one because we want to believe. We live in the age of prosperity gospel where we're taught from pulpits that God wants you to have everything to your heart's content, that he wants you to be rich and wealthy and healthy and happy. But the reality is that, you know, Paul, whom the Lord loved, was given a thorn in the flesh, and he prayed to God to take it away three times, and God said, nope. There are many of us who our lot in life is to suffer, not to get the things that we want, to really have a hard time, to have things. Think of Job. We were preaching through Job a few weeks ago. Job had a big family and all kinds of wealth and property. He lost it all. And we tell his story, not because he fell away from the faith, but because even then he fell on his knees and he worshiped the Lord. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Empty I came into this world and empty I'll leave. You remember those words of wisdom. But we don't have a God who always requires that we suffer. Life is suffering and sometimes there's nothing to be done about it. We have a God who hears our prayers and when we humble ourselves often lifts us up. And when we look to Hannah, Hannah Yes, she had her husband's love, but the yearning of her heart was not fulfilled. And you know what? Sometimes God hears our prayers like the prayers for Aspen. And he says, you know what? Let's do it. But I have every confidence that if we don't pray, God doesn't act a lot of the time. A lot of the time he will. He's going to do what he's going to do no matter what we do. But are we going to be on his side or not? Are we going to be seeking his wisdom or not? Are we going to be appealing to him for our loved ones or not? To some people, reading this story, Hannah seems like a monster. She, she had this boy, now she's going to give him away. But she was serving God's glory, not her own, and God was glorified through the life of Samuel. A lot of people become parents, and they forget that their lives are no longer about them anymore. Their lives are now about building up their children. It's an easy thing to say, it's a harder thing to do. Every day my selfish brain starts making me think about me, and every day I have to say, Shut up, Jeffrey. You got three kids. You got a fourth on the way. You don't have time to be thinking about yourself. And so far, we haven't screwed them up too bad, I sure hope. But you know what? God is good. And despite my own weaknesses, despite my absences, you know, I'll leave the house sometimes, and Clementine is screaming, Mama, Mama, because she thinks I'm Mama. But, you know, I could feel guilty and go, oh, i got to go home, i got to quit my job, i got to be with my girl all day, every day, but that's not what the Lord requires. The Lord requires that I'm a strong man who provides for his family, and God is going to help my daughter do okay without her daddy around sometimes. We live in an age where we let trauma rule the day. Trauma is this notion that we can be so damaged that we can't ever be put back together again. I just bought a book I'm going to read. It's called The End of Trauma. This psychotherapist looked at at large studies on trauma, and he said, you know what? People are more resilient than they are weak. People can bounce back from all kinds of harm. We live in an age that tells us we are weak. We have to be protected. We're fragile. We need to be safe. But the reality is that God gives us strength. Has anyone ever gotten strength from God that you didn't have yourself? Anybody ever make it through a season in life where you're just like, I can't do this, but God gets you through? Yes. I'm looking at some of you been through hard or hard, hard times. But God got you through. And the the church was a little bit a part of that, but God is the one picking you up, getting you out of bed every morning. God is the one helping you look in the mirror. God is the one helping you take every breath, keeping your heart beating. Sometimes you're so beat down, you feel like your heart's just going to stop beating. But God is good. Trauma is not the end of the story. We get damaged in this life, but God puts us back together. And then that's the promise of the kingdom, right? That one day, even though our bodies are completely dead, he's going to raise us from the dead and usher us into his kingdom where there is no sorrow or suffering or sin or death anymore. And that's, that's what we're made for, is eternal life of bliss with God. So here and now, our, our lives are not meant to be lived damaged and traumatized and broken, Our lives are meant to be lived faithfully in the light of God, trusting in him, praying to him, faithfully giving ourselves for him and for others, and God sees, and he acts, and he rewards. We have a good God, don't we?
2: Our third reading is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 25, which begins on page 1871 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The word of the Lord. Thanks be 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 to God.
0: So some of this we've already talked through when it's talking about the priest whose sacrifice takes away our sins and makes us perfect. What priest is that talking about? Jesus, yeah. Jesus and then uh, whenever it says Therefore brothers and sisters since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus Somebody hold up your bulletin. What's the image on that? Right here Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood What's on that? You see how this is like a curtain? What's that in the, behind the words there? What is that an image of? It's a lamb Who does the lamb represent? Jesus. You see that lamb on the stained glass, and it's the center portion at the bottom left. It's got that victory flag. That's the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's Jesus. He is the final Paschal lamb. He is the one whose blood is enough. Here in this reading, it says, the ancient uh, sacrifices of, of priests done on a daily basis, they would cover over sins, not erase them. Jesus' blood is so powerful that it erases our sins forever so that we are made perfect in God's sight. And there are different people who argue about what that means. We belong to a tradition that says that when we've been washed with the blood of Jesus, whenever we've been sprinkled with his blood, as it talked about in here, that we become holy as Jesus is holy. Maybe not instantaneously, but we get on a path of sanctification where God, over time, takes our sin from us. And as one who's been on this path, God has taken a lot of my sin from me. i got to tell you, I'm a big fan of the Wesleyan understanding of sin. We're not dead in our sins God liberates us from our sins through the blood of Christ Jesus. I grew up in a tradition that talk, didn't talk about blood very much because blood is icky. My, my dad kind of passes out when he sees blood. My brother Daniel, he's the same. He got injured in front of his girlfriend, not girlfriend, his wife. Can not believe Daniel's married? He was just a little boy when he served here. Anyway, he, uh, he cut his hand and he got kind of woozy. He had to sit down. I was reading through, I went and visited my grandma. In Texas a couple weeks ago because she's nearing the end of her life and she was telling a story my dad gets his aversion of blood from his father JC my son Jesse's namesake there was an incident where my uncle got injured and they took him in to the hospital and it was a really long time my grandmother and my dad and a couple others were waiting out in the car and finally they went in and they found out they were so long not because my uncle Scott was having a hard time but because my grandfather saw the blood and passed out and they had to attend upon him you know so this is the kind of we live in a a generation of people where we we hide blood and guts and puke pretty good we just keep it in the movies but in real life you know we have hospitals and old folks homes we don't have people on the streets suffering like people of every other age did but anyway blood is a big part of our faith but it's a part a lot of people don't want to talk about just so you know what's coming we're singing a hymn about blood there is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. You see the clear overlap here, but there are a lot of people who don't want to talk about the blood. They don't want to talk about the cross. They don't want to talk about the suffering because why do you think? I think it's because a lot of people don't want to see how ugly their sin is because sin is so ugly that a very ugly price had to be paid to cancel it out. We want to believe that our sin is is kind of cute i mean it's not really that great but it's not a big deal no sin is such a big deal that jesus who was at the right hand of the father from the beginning of creation he was co-eternal with the father living in the lap of luxury in the highest heavens he loved us so much that he took on flesh to become one of us and he became vulnerable to us he suffered alongside of us and then he let us tear him apart on a cross pretty much Just a terrible death. And why did he do this? He did this because he loved us. But the price he paid was blood, the price of blood, his own life. And far be it from us not to look. You know, that's why we have, you know, there's some traditions. Like Mormons, they don't put crosses up in their worship spaces. They think it's grotesque. It's like putting an electric chair up there. Seriously, it's an instrument of death, isn't it? Of humiliation and death. And that's what we look at. That's what we make the central focus of our sanctuary. Because we want to be appreciative of. Of the sacrifice that made us holy, Amen. Now, the last part of this reading is the part, uh, you know, I've always got to push a little bit. Well, that's not a helpful setup. This week, there's a there's a preacher I don't agree with about everything. His name's John MacArthur. He leads a huge church in California. He's been doing it for decades very different kind of preacher than me. He doesn't do pastoral care. He's not out in the community. All he does is Bible study all week long, preparing his message for the following Sunday. But this last Sunday from his pulpit, he using this, I'm going to read it again from the end of our reading. He says, verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So using that as a text, he said there is no such thing as Zoom church or Facebook Live church or YouTube church. He knows that during the COVID-19 pandemic period, a lot of churches closed their doors and they said, join us online. Turn on your uh, TV or computer at the right time. Worship with us from home. It's just as good. He says, nope, not at all. Not at all. There are a lot of people who instantly get upset at this because that's what they've been doing and they don't want to feel convicted or because people they love, that's what they're doing. They have compromised immune systems. What, you mean to tell me that we have to just go commit suicide to, to follow the Lord? But here's the text he said. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. He says you can't do that online. You can't do it unless you are with people face to face. He says it's not about the pastor. This is one of the things I love about him and Vodi Bachum. He's an amazing pastor. They both say... We're great preachers, fine. You can watch us online, fine. We are not a replacement from your pastor and your church. They say, if you've enjoyed our sermon, great. Go bless your church. They're, they're not trying to build a big online ministry. They're saying, go bless the church where you are. I really appreciate that because I'm no You Vadi know, I'm an okay preacher. I'm not great. I'm, a, I'm comfortable with that. And I'm fine with other people building up the people here. I'm not fine with people taking supplements and thinking they're getting a full meal you know we offer online worship here but it's not because i think it's a valid replacement for what we're doing here it's because i understand a lot of people are just going to be gone they're just not going to be here and i don't want to leave them blowing in the wind i i don't have it in me to say oh if you can't be here well then forget you i my spirit is not there what i'm dreaming about is a future where everybody feels like they can be here again together in the future and you know, I, I understand that there's risk involved with that, but there's always been risk in getting together with people. People are nasty. Anybody know you're gross? I'll tell. You, next time you get sick, just call me and tell me. Oh, I'm not gross. Everybody's gross, you know. And we we get sicknesses that we pass along to one another, and it's awful. And sometimes people die from it. But Christians throughout the ages have been willing to say it's worth it. It's worth it, because we do things together that we can't do apart. We build one another up. We provoke one another to good deeds and love. And I'll tell you, I, if people aren't watching me 24-7, I'm not a good dude. I wish I were. I wish I were. I wish I was noble and had integrity every given moment. But the reality is I need people watching me. I need you to be here with me. If I, I tell you, if I couldn't have done it, I remember the first couple weeks of COVID, it was me and Cody and Dave and my wife, and that was it. That was it. And if that was still the case, and I was just broadcasting like some freaking TV preacher, I couldn't do it. I Just count me out. I would have quit. Because it's all about the connection we have here. It's not about the preacher. It's about the connection we have here. And so I don't appreciate John MacArthur's hostile spirit. And I, don't, I certainly don't want anyone to feel judged. And, you know, if you're with us online, I'm very glad you're with us online. But the thing we have to be aiming at is all being together as Christ died for us to be together and to be able to come to terms with our own limitations our own mortality and to be willing to die for one another with one another that's i mean that's Jesus' his call is pretty much follow me and die because what we find is he's on the other side of death and we have nothing to be afraid of amen in the meantime we live in a time where not everybody sees things the same everybody does their cost benefit analysis differently And we all do our valuations differently. So I have the way I see things, and I really shouldn't be asked to pretend that I don't see things the way that I do. But I think within the church, we have to be very gracious with one another. And we have to understand other people don't see things the same way that I do. And our job is not to judge one another, but it is to provoke one another to love and good deeds. And God help us if as a church we don't do that for fear of offense. Two things that I thought were helpful to say with each of our readings before that I neglected to say that I'm going to say now. One with the story of Hannah in the tabernacle. I said I love this part. I didn't say why. The priest comes along and he accuses her of being drunk and she says, not so, my Lord. I'm not drunk. I'm pouring out my heart. The thing I love about that is how many people enter into a church today and the pastor or someone in the church says something they don't like and they don't stand up for themselves. They don't ask following questions. They're just gone. They've been offended they're done. That's a problem. People are too fragile. You know what? Stand up for yourself. I I learned recently, well, whatever, that's not helpful to talk about. What is helpful to talk about is when someone offends you, give them a chance to make things right. Don't just disappear. Church doesn't work if everybody wears their heart on their shoulder, heart on their sleeve, and gets offended and leaves, okay? I know I've already offended many of you. Thank you for forgiving me. Okay. It's not that I'm setting out to do so. I think Jesus offended people a lot of the time. I hope the only times I ever offend you are things that Jesus would also offend you over. But if I've ever unnecessarily offended, I don't feel good about that, and I repent, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Do not leave, not because it'll hurt my feelings, but because it's bad for you. It's bad for you not to be with the community of saints, especially when holding a grudge. The second thing I thought was helpful to to, to Call to member, there are a lot of people who want to stand up for online church. And I agree it's a helpful supplement if you can't be with us in person. However, it is not a replacement. And the reason I'm so confident about that, I didn't say this clearly enough. We've just been doing a year and a half of online schooling, a lot of school systems, closed down physical campuses. They've been doing it online. Do you all know how this has worked out? Terribly. Uniformly, terribly. There's not a single school district that our country is looking at and going, they're doing it right. Their kids are doing what? All the kids are doing bad, okay? And why on earth do we think that the church would be able to do better with transforming people's lives than the schools? Schools have them five days a week. We've got you guys an hour, hour and a half each week. We can't do what we need to do through a screen. We just can't. So we're going to do what we can do through a screen. And I'm always posting things on Facebook and I'm sending you annoying emails because I'm just waging war against Satan with my flock here. But don't be under the impression that even if you read everything I send you, there are blessings you can only get by being with one another that I can't give you through any screen, no matter how many pixels you got. Okay, and that was a nerdy way to end it. But those were the things that I think are we're, we want to be lied to. We want to say... You can be safe and stay in your comfort and do these, these, these stopgap measures and it'll be the same. And it'll be better than nothing. I'm willing to say it's better than nothing, but it is not the same. And I just think I would be lying to you if I, if I participated in that lie. It's not the same. It's fine if that's what we've got to do right now. If, if the Black Death were going on outside, I would probably be chewing all of you all out for being here. You know, it's, We have to take into account what's going on. But even so, there comes a point where we've just got to reckon with things as they are, and we've got to read the Bible for what it says, and we can't let it we can't we can't stop our ears whenever it says the things that are inconvenient for us right now. Okay. I spoke too long on that. Our final reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter thirteen, right? Yeah. No, chapter ten. No. Nope. Sorry. Here we go. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 8, it's on page 1580 of your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every stone, every one will be thrown down. The temple was the one place, I'm stepping outside of the reading, this isn't the Bible, the, the temple was the one place Jews believed God's presence resided in a particular way. They had synagogues, but God's presence wasn't there the way it was in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. What, there, what Jesus is saying is, you see this building which is so wonderful that it's the connection between God and the world, it is going to be so destroyed, not one stone is going to be left upon another. How do you think that would make a Jew feel in that day? Imagine you take an American and you take them over to Washington, D.C., and they look at the, the, the country's Capitol building and they say, Oh, look at that beautiful Capitol building. Isn't it amazing? And someone says, That place is going to get bombed to smithereens. There's not going to be one stone left on another. How do you think an average American would feel about that? They'd be mad. How dare you say such a thing! about the center of our government, the center of my nation. Now, that is just a civic thing that we have emotions about. Can you imagine for a Jew what it's like to take their building where God resides and say, that thing's going to be utterly destroyed? Can you imagine how upsetting that would be to hear? There's a reason why people were constantly leaving Jesus. He was right, but the way he said it, he didn't even mince words about it. He said, you see all those great buildings? Dunzo, destroyed. As Jesus was... Sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will all these things happen, and what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? For the Jews, hearing this, all of his disciples were Jews, Jesus was a Jew, this is God's connection point to earth. God is powerful, he's a mighty warrior God, if his home on earth is destroyed, do you think he's just going to take that lion down and let it happen? The Jews thought, nope. That's the day of the Lord. That's when he comes and he kills all the bad guys and establishes his kingdom on earth. So when the apostles are asking, when is this going to happen? What's the sign it's going to happen? They're saying, when is, they know Jesus is the Messiah. When are you bringing the kingdom? When's this going to happen? What's the sign? That's what they're asking him here. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are just the beginnings of the birth pains. I know I put just in there, but that's clearly the meaning here. just, Just the beginning of the birth pains. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Jesus keeps on speaking after this, and if you've been coming to my Bible study on Thursday evenings, we've been covering this. Jesus goes back and forth between talking about when the temple was destroyed and the day of the Lord, which has not come yet. The temple already has been destroyed, and not one stone was left upon another. Jesus was right about this. But the day of the Lord has not come yet. Jesus said it will be like a lightning bolt across the sky. Everybody's going to see it when the Messiah returns. And Jesus' words have been true. There have been wars, and everybody's wanting to get worked up about wars. Jesus says, this is sure to happen. There have been famines, plagues, all these things have happened. Jesus says, these are just the beginnings of the birth pangs. Don't freak out. People have always been wanting to freak out, saying it's right around the corner. People have always wanted to believe in a a Messiah who comes and says, I am he. No, Jesus says, don't believe in fake Messiahs and don't get worked up about historical events. What he ends up saying here is there are going to be signs, but nobody's going to see them. You're not going to know. So watch, be vigilant, because I'm going to show up and nobody's going to be prepared. He says, nobody knows what day it's going to be on. He said, I don't even know what. Only the Father in heaven knows what day I'll return. So the moral of the story, the thing that he builds up to here is there are going to be cataclysmic things happen. Things are going to happen that we think, oh, surely this can't happen. God is surely going to come, and they're going to happen, and God is not going to come because we can't force his hand. We can't make him come on our time. He comes on his time. And we have to come to terms with the fact that we're going to lose things that we don't think we're going to lose. We're going to go through hard times that we think, surely God isn't going to let me go through this hard time. We're going to have to. And then what gets us through that hard time is if we lean on him or not. There are a lot of Jews that leaned on the Lord thinking he was going to come and destroy the Romans, and he didn't come in their time. He comes on his time. And so the people that the Lord wishes to create in us is people who are patient, peaceable, we practice self-denial, and we put our nose to the grindstone every day, knowing that any day could be the day that our Lord and Master shows back up. And are you going to be ready? Am I going to be ready? So that's why we spend all this time in in God's word. We're, We're right at the end of our worship service here. So let me encourage you to do what we're here to do. We've gathered together to do what the Bible says to do. Provoke one another to love and good deeds. Let's do that. This is not the Jeffrey Rickman show. This is the Jesus show that we're all a part of. Let's do what we're here to do every day. We're called to repent. We're called to be sanctified in holiness. We're called to be ready for Christ's coming and his coming kingdom. Are you ready? I want to be ready. Are you ready?